This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hi, it's John Hall, and I am in Connecticut this week at the Two Roads Brewery, which is in Stratford, right off of I-95. If you're driving from New York up to Boston, you'll see a billboard that if it has a beer lever, it will pop out uh, to you because it instructs you to exit at exit 31, turn left, and you'll find a brewery. It is the best pit stop that you can make in between those two great cities. And I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Phil Markowski, who is the brewmaster here at Two Roads, a longtime brewing professional. He has been responsible for a lot of the beers that uh, younger brewers, uh, not to put an age on you, Phil, but younger <laughs> brewers will cite as an inspiration for them. Uh, I think most notably Southampton Double White, um, uh, Southampton Wit that came out uh, years ago um, uh, when you were at another brewery. But now here at Two Roads, you're wearing sort of two different hats uh, as uh, one of the founders here, uh, also as a brewer uh, for the Two Roads brands. And then also, this is a contract facility, so you're working with other brewers as well who uh, contract out with you guys, and you're uh, uh, making some beer for other folks these days. And so I want to get into all that, but first, uh, thanks for sitting down. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, John. Thanks for being here and allowing me to do this. So. Yeah. So we're in a conference room, uh, and this, this is a uh, – there's no beating around the bush. This is an old building. It is. So uh, we're going to be hearing uh, people upstairs. We're going to be hearing the creaks of the walls. Um, uh, but the, the cool thing is about this brewery and, and having visited here uh, several times is uh, you really sort of brought this. It was a uh, helicopter uh, parts factory, right? Actually, it was. they made uh, machinery for bending and forming stamping metals. Okay. So um, anything from, say, clothing snaps. Uh, to to Levi jeans snaps, they made machinery that made those things, um, and actually sold quite a bit to the automotive industry, um, is probably the helicopter industry as well. But Stratford is certainly known for uh, Sikorsky aircraft, home of of now uh, military's prime helicopters. So so it's uh, still a, a manufacturing town, but not um, obviously. You know, not not as it once was, and that was something that we really wanted to do as part of our business plan was to resurrect one of these and and you know repurpose one of these abandoned factory buildings. Which unfortunately, there are quite a few around the Northeast and and especially this part of Connecticut. So yeah, uh, so our building is from 1911, and it's a solid building though. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where when you walk into some new construction and new breweries there, it, it sort of feels uh, a little cookie cutter. It feels sort of the same. Um, uh, or it's just a corrugated metal building uh, that, that folks have, have put up. Um, do you think that there's something – how much does location play into the beers that you make? Uh, the location of the – like where we are, like like just like the the nature of the building. Like, do do you draw inspiration from the physical location, or does inspiration come just from years of being a brewer? Well, inspiration comes from many places. Um, certainly, some of our our 
beer names have been um, derived from the factory and, and um, products that they once made and just sort of the, the, the whole aura of a manufacturing facility, at least a, a former manufacturing facility, which is now again a manufacturing facility. Um, so so the, the um, inspirations are many. Um, from the town, you know, we've, we've gotten great support from people and um, haven't really tailored the beers that we made as, as a result of the local population, but are cognizant of, of the fact that many, many people who come here on a regular basis were not familiar with craft beer um, before we arrived here. And, and, you know, the fact that they were lined up to come in opening day is just testament to how supportive the local community has been. And, you know, to me, that's it, it, I, frankly the, one of the most inspirational things that I can hear on a daily basis is hearing someone say that, hey, you know, I used to drink uh, mainstream American beer and now, now I can't because I've discovered that beer can have more flavor and character than I ever imagined. And that, that more than anything else makes my day and inspires me to continue. There's an interesting uh, story in the uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, our Brewing Industry Guide. Uh, I have a profile of two roads uh, that I wrote uh, that's in our latest uh, issue right now. And I was talking to Brad Hiddle, uh, one of the other co-founders of of the brewery as well. And he told sort of an interesting story about how you all came to work together. Uh, And it had to do with something that we're actually seeing these days of Pabst uh, when Brad was there, uh, working with or finding uh, partnerships with other breweries for distribution, for manufacturing, uh, not necessarily taking an ownership stake, but sort of working on the distribution chain, some marketing stuff. Uh, We've seen that uh, in recent years with with Vermont Hard Cider. We've seen it with uh, uh, New Holland. But uh, when you were at Southampton, uh, that's one of the first times that that they did this, and the idea was to put together a um, uh, to find a place for you to do contract brewing, and going from a smaller system to uh, where you could scale it up. And I wonder if you can pick up the story from there. Sure. Um, when I was at Southampton, it was a, a small facility in in one of the most expensive areas <laughs> in the world. It's not just the U.S., but the world to to purchase real estate, expansion of the existing brewery was not an option. How big was that brew house? Uh, that was a 15-barrel brew house. Okay. And, you know, again, the it was in right in Southampton Village, so uh, it just exorbitantly expensive area for real estate. So um, we knew if we wanted to market those brands on a, on a larger scale, we'd have to go contract somewhere else. So we had we had an uh, existing relationship with some contract brewers, and then when we aligned with Pabst on a you know marketing and distribution uh, venture, we realized we, you know we needed to produce at yet a larger facility, and uh, there you know there's several options here in the Northeast uh, where you can contract brew at existing facilities, but um, you know in in reality these were breweries that were set up to produce one type of beer. Uh, you know, just kind of your typical American lager. And it was frustrating to try and replicate craft-style beers there, to, to dry hop in these facilities. They weren't set up for it. The tanks weren't um, of the right geometry to do it. So really, from, from at every turn, there was frustration in trying to replicate a craft-style beer. So from that experience, and, and then when... Uh, Pabst dissolved uh, or, or was purchased, you know, Brad did not want to work in a, 
anymore with them. They didn't want anything to do with, um, you know, a, a sort of a nascent craft uh, wing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just we, we resurrected a 20-odd-year-old business plan because I had known um, Brad and Clem Polani, who's our our VP of sales and marketing. I've known them for over 20 years, and we, you know, we've worked together here and there over the years on things where I was hired as a consultant. So we knew each other. Uh, fourth partner is Peter During. He's our, our CFO. Um, I don't have any claims to being a business person. I'm, I'm the odd man out. I'm the only one of the partners without an MBA. Um, but Some might argue, though, that skills. you're sort of necessary yeah, to the brewery I, I think, plan, though. I, I think that, that, I, that I, have a, I have a place here. So, um, so we, you know, we realized there was a business opportunity here as well, that, that, that there were other crop breweries, certainly like, like myself, who had been frustrated by the lack of, of a place that was, first of all, sized properly for, or sized appropriately for, for craft-style beer, but also had the facility to replicate craft beers. Um, you know, reality is most of these breweries that got into contract brewing did so as a means of survival. They reluctantly got in. So customer service, you know, fair to say it was generally lacking. Right. The brewers saying you need us more than we need you. That, it was, that, that was the attitude. So there wasn't a whole lot of, um, you know, ability to communicate, to get details about how your beer was progressing during, during the process. So, you know, we knew we needed to improve on that. And, and really set up a business from the get-go that was, that was not only open to contract brewing, but was actually dependent on it. And, you know, from our point of view, we've all heard umpteen stories where breweries open up and then outgrow their facility and have to either uh, purchase or relocate to a, an entirely new location or expand their existing. We really wanted to avoid that. We wanted to build it once, which meant build it big and uh, start off with, you know, contract production, which would, would uh, always be part of our, our business plan uh, while we grow our own brand, you know, the contract brewing keeps the lights on, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, it also filled a niche that, that frankly turned out to be a much greater demand than we thought where there's many more people interested in craft-style contract production. Sure. Well, five years ago when you opened, it's when we really started to see just the ramp up of more and more breweries open. You guys sort of opened at the right time. Oh, we did. That was by by dumb luck, I'll confess. But but that that did happen. uh, That the craft brew wave in Connecticut in particular was was finally hitting Connecticut. I started my career here 28 years ago, 29 years ago. And... um, just never, you know, was always envious of other markets that, you know, where where the population embraced their local breweries. That just didn't happen here until, until around the time we opened. Which was, again, it was just just our good fortune to to time things that way. Um, but we we did recognize an opportunity to to construct a facility that would be state of the art in a hundred and some odd year old building. Right. And uh, the the demand was far greater, so we've. Uh, and what's know, capacity here? Uh, on paper, our capacity is just shy of two hundred thousand barrels. Okay. Um, but you know the the brewing business, you don't brew the same. The demand for beer is not the same in January as it is in July. So you sure. have these seasonal spikes that 
that max you out during the warmer months. And then you have, you tend to have uh, a little spare capacity in the winter months. So um, that's, that's a factor in how much we produce, but uh, we expect to produce a little over 150,000 barrels this year. And that's combined between... That's combined between two roads and in contract. And so I, I, I found it interesting. We're seeing this more and more these days where there's, there's stores coming out with even if, uh, with AB uh, purchasing uh, some smaller crafts. People are saying, oh, well, you know, they're just going to send all this stuff to, to Newark or Merrimack or, or, or wherever. But you're right that these breweries were designed and have morphed into the years to make one style of beer. And so it's, it's harder to make a double IPA on a system. It's almost impossible to make a double IPA on a system uh, that is designed for the American adjunct lager. Um, so when you guys opened up, you, you had that in mind. And I, I believe it was you who told me uh, in, in this piece that um, – it wasn't, hey, let's open up and six months down the line we'll get you know a canning line put in, or six months down the line we'll you know add a centrifuge or whatever. It's you wanted everything right off the bat so that you could be pretty much everything for anybody's needs. Correct, and that's another lesson we learned. You know, contract brewing and other facilities that you know people want the ability to do different shaped labels. They want to be the ability to fill different size packages. So we. We, we knew we needed uh, to be versatile and offer versatility. And that was something we built in from the beginning. And it, it um, I think, has paid off. You know, we have uh, 12 customers now, soon to be 13. We've, we've okay. gone back and forth. You know, people have, have come, come and gone. We've filled a temporary need while somebody is uh, installing a canning line themselves or, or revamping a bottle filler. Yeah. or simply have completed an expansion. So that's completely understandable and, and part of the business that people come and go. Um, and But again, we're, we always expect contract production to be part of our business profile. And we strive to, to keep our customers happy. And part of that is just having a lot of uh, flexibility in our equipment, and what we in the packaging styles and types we can do, and we expect to maintain all that and sustain that. So, for drinkers of a certain age, the word contract was a dirty word. And I've even talked to people who uh, have started up contract breweries uh, in, in, in a similar vein to what you did um, uh, a few years back, and people who started around the same time, and they even chafed at the word where they're like, well, we're, we're a partner brewery. Uh, just because the word uh, contract did have this sort of negative connotation from the early days of craft where like, oh, you don't have your own brewery, so you're not a real brewery. And there were drinkers who would rebel against this. There's other mm-hmm. brewers who would rebel against this. What has changed since those days where now people don't I, – I don't think that the, 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 the general um, uh, drinker minds that they can drink Chris Loring's beer from Notch uh, either at his brewery uh, in Salem or that uh, is made here. Uh, and same thing with, with, with some of the other breweries that, that you guys do with Lawson's, for example. People are just happy to have – more of the beer these days uh, that's out there uh, that is contract produced. But for somebody who is making this beer and talking with these brewers and, and sitting with consumers, what what do you see uh, that brought on this sort of this change in people's mind? 
Well, I think there's a couple of factors in in what has you know resulted in the the stigma associated with contract brewing being somewhat you know dissolved or worn down, and I, I think there's a certain point where people realize it matters what how does the beer taste you know what's what's in the bottle what's in the can versus where is it made how is it made is it you know is is all of this politically correct or not yeah kind of ends up not being sustainable in the end it's more about how does it taste and what's you know what is the beer like truly that's factor one i i think that um, the the advent of the so-called gypsy brewer may have had a, a role in this as well, where mm-hmm. it to some became cool to not have a brewery <laughs> and to wander around and brew, yeah. yeah, to to brew at uh, other facilities and just sort of um, you know to have fun, do that, travel, not have your own brewery to to uh, call home has had been an advantage to some people, and I think that. That it, the popularity of the beers produced by so-called gypsy brewers have have helped erode the idea that you, if you don't have your own brewery, then you're not a real brewer, and uh, you know that that I think is is has played a role. But it, I think it's in a way is just sort of the maturity, the the industry, and the drinker, frankly, maturing and saying, hey, what matters most is what's in the glass. So. What is in the glass, uh, aside from the contract uh, partners that you have here and the, the beers that you're making for other folks, there is a Two Roads branded beer, a Two Roads line of beer, everything from uh, a, a really great Pilsner that I'm uh, an unabashed fan of, uh, to Hoppy Rails, to uh, a lot of Saisons uh, uh, and Hefeweizens and, 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 and Lambics. Um, and you're the driving force behind these beers. Uh, when you were putting together the plan for the beers that you wanted to make under the Two Roads brand, so you as the brewer in the driver's seat, uh, after a career in, uh, in, in beer where um, you focused on so many different styles, uh, you wrote a book on farmhouse ales that uh, is a go-to for people who, who enjoy the style. Um, what, what were you excited about making? Like what, 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 everybody has to launch with an IPA, right? And, uh, everybody has to have hoppier beers these days, but you could really start to experiment with your core lineup and the beers that you put out, especially in a state of the art facility like this. So as you were putting stuff, your plan together in your mind for the beers, where was your mind, what direction were you headed in? Well, you know, we, we are not. Unlike any other craft brewery, the IPAs are bread and butter. That's just the way it is. You know, that's and, and so much of it's consumer driven. It, it's you're, you're in a business of brewing beer, and, and it'd be wise to give the consumer what they're looking for. Um, at the same time, I think you offer products that that are you know can set you apart or present an opportunity for the the more adventurous consumer to explore other styles and realize that. There is a world beyond IPA, um, but IPAs are there. There are our main brands. No, no mistake about it. Um, you know, I do expect that uh, the the craft brewing brewing industry will evolve further. Will continue to evolve, and IPAs will certainly never go away. But I think that people will want and have already started to explore other styles. 
so we, we felt as a group when we opened that it would be wise to open with two IPAs. Mm-hmm. So Road to Ruin, which is a double IPA, was uh, one of our uh, first products, as well as Honey Spot Road, which is a, a white IPA. Um, you know, it's, it's not what people expect white IPA to be based on the name, but it's, you know, it's inspired by a Belgian wit beer. So it's made with raw wheat and we use varieties of hops that have a, you know, this, a definite citrus component. So it mimics some of the character of Belgian white ale, but it's really about uh, hops in the end. Um, but we also felt lagers were, were certainly underrepresented in craft. And, and this is five years ago. Are. This yeah. is uh, six years ago yeah, now. Six years ago, yeah. Um, and and we, we felt strongly that a Pilsner would, would be the style to open with because it's hop forward uh, like an IPA, only it's a lager. And yeah. it's got that flavor profile. You know, if you can imagine 150 years ago when Pilsners first came on the scene, um, how they revolutionized beer. I mean, they were, it was a high-tech beer. It was, the, you know, the advent of the industrial age. So a lot of factors played into it, but... When you really get down to it, it's that crisp flavor profile of a well-made Pilsner. You can drink, you know, one after the other. Uh, that That is a large part of its worldwide success. So I think it's only a matter of time that lagers really, that, that craft brewing shifts more in the lager direction. Definitely not entirely away from IPAs by any means. But lagers are still, I think, underrepresented and... Five years, ten years from now, we're going to see more loggers in the craft segment. So we felt it was important to to have a logger entry, and Pilsner made the most sense to us. And then the fourth brand that we opened with initially was Workers Comp. Um, I have been somewhat typecast as a farmhouse sales guy, so uh, that was part of it. But it was really the fact that that farmhouse sales saisons in general were beers that were done seasonally, often in large format packages, and also often at higher than traditional alcohol levels. So we wanted to do something that was available year-round in that, that rain, uh, in that vein, and then something that was uh, more moderate in alcohol content, closer to the tradition. Now, not a lot of us having researched the topic, I can tell you there's not tons of historical documentation on farmhouse sales, how they were brewed way back when. Uh, and I think a large part of that is because they were brewed on farms for their own consumption. Sure. But, you know, you think about it, uh, in that age, people drank beer, people of all ages drank beer pretty much all day long because there was, it was not safe to drink the water. So in order for people to function, you got to figure the beers were maybe 2 to 3% at best. Yeah. Um, so we're not quite matching that level because that's not really considered, uh, you know, of proper strength for beer. So we, sure. we arrived at a 4.8% alcohol for our workers' comp and, you know, felt that was a niche product that, that would get people interested. It, you know, it was, it was available year-round, but be something that would draw people to try something different that was and hopefully pleasant tasting and something they'd go back for. You you could, if you wanted to, though, make a 2% farmhouse. We could. Okay. I mean, if, if we're going to see the evolution and more people come in to, uh, to the drinking fold, do, 
can you see a world where the two percent would actually be something that people would would go for? Is that even something that you, as a brewer, would be happy to make? Uh, uh, I definitely would be happy to make a two percent beer. You know, it's it, people tend to think that big, you know, uh, bombastic beers like uh, barrel-aged Russian Imperial Stouts are mm-hmm. more difficult to make. They're in fact not. They, in fact, tend to be easier to make than than a lager that is four percent or four and a half percent. And so, a two percent beer would be a real challenge. And without going into much detail, I can say that we have something similar planned for our new facility area too, which is currently under construction. I can see uh, steel beams being lowered in place as we speak here, out the window. Um, so we're building a, a you know a, a specialty uh, brewing facility. It's going to it's going to emphasize uh, wood aged brands, um, but we're going to have things of all manner of stripe that we wouldn't feel comfortable building brewing in this facility here because of different different yeasts and microbes that are used. So hence a separate facility where we'll I think we'll we'll be doing a wide range of things. Well, I want to talk about Area 2 in just a minute, but I, I think you bring up an interesting point because I, I remember the first time as a, when I was a young drinker, and I'm sure that there's homebrewers who are listening to this who, who are, were nodding along as you were saying it's, uh, it, it's harder to make a lager, in some cases a 4%, as opposed to uh, you know, a big, thick, boozy Russian imperial stout. But I, I remember the first time that I heard that, and I was like, how, how can that be? Um, can you sort of just give us a little bit of background as to you know, why it would be easier to make one of those as opposed to a lager well, or another style, for example, or a softer, more delicate style, maybe. Kind of the often said, uh, presented analogy is, is um, you know, brewing a Russian Imperial stout, you've got a parka and, you know, three layers on. And brewing a, a lighter lager beer, you're, you're standing there in a Speedo. You know, it's it just... There's less to hide behind for is is basically the uh, what it comes down to. So any flaw, any anything you know out of place, is really going to show in a very light, delicate tasting beer. And you know when you've got lots of of malt, lots of alcohol and wood and booze character and hops in a say a barley wine or a Russian imperial stout that's barrel aged. Um, there's a lot going on, so a little flaw, a little mistake, if you will, in the process isn't going to be evident. Um, and not that I don't appreciate those beers. I appreciate beers of all, all across the spectrum. So, uh, you know, speaking for myself, I can say these days I actually get a lot more excited about a 3% beer than I do about a 12% beer, simply because there aren't many out there, and I know how difficult it is to make that. And, you know, I like the taste of beer. I like drinking beer, and I like to drink more than one. So when the alcohol content is low and moderate and you still have plenty of flavor and character, that's the beer for me. Is there a style? I, I, I know you mentioned earlier that you're typecast. Um, is, there, is there a style that you find yourself more passionate about than others? Is there, is there a style that... Uh, I don't know, captures you as a brewer in a way that others don't? You know, I can't single out one particular style like of beer. like picking your favorite kid? Uh, it's partly that. And, I mean, I like the challenge of brewing 
any kind of beer that, that we produce here. But I don't necessarily like, I don't necessarily gravitate toward, you know, those styles of beer. I, I, you know, I enjoy drinking every style, or making every style, don't necessarily enjoy drinking every style all the time. There's certain beers for, for every day and there's some for special occasions and that's, that's to me what's great about this industry. In a three-decade brewing career, you just mentioned the challenge of, of brewing a style. Was there a beer, a beer style that you found vexing at some point that took you longer than others to to master, to perfect to your own liking? Is there, you know, is, is there sort of a, not a white whale, but uh, a, a nemesis beer <laughs> a, a, as a brewer that you've come across? Um well, first, just to back off, I wanted to clarify something. I think it's a mistake to think you've ever mastered any style of beer okay. you know, as a brewer. I think that's a big mistake. Um, it should always be, at least speaking for myself, I'm always striving to to improve a product, the process, the, the just everything, the longevity. There's always something to improve. So to feel that you've 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 nailed it with one style or another, I think is a mistake for any brewer to, to consider that. Um, but to get to your question, I mean, I am still at times just, just, uh, so impressed with German loggers and say, how the hell, how do they do it? You know, <laughs> what's the secret? There's always still always in pursuit of that sort of perfection of the right balance, you know, super clean, just super uh, nuanced lager beer, particularly something along the lines of a Hellas, where you've got that that back and forth between the malt and the hops, and you're never really sure which one dominates the other. I mean, that that to me is is almost an endless pursuit to try to try to get to that point. So that's one style I could pick out now. But God, there's just in in you can pick out there's just too many examples but that's that's one that comes to mind for me where i've been vexed by by uh certain lager beers that i've had and just wonder how how do they do it so i want to switch gears and a question that i get actually quite a bit is do i think sours are going to be the next ipa and i always respond with uh if if i knew that i'd be doing something different and i'd you know be at the track betting on the the races knowing the the outcome um in talking with uh with you and brad for the story in uh, in our brewing industry guide there is no IRI data. There is no real statistical data that sours are money makers or the next big thing. They're exciting for a lot of folks, and it's uh, something that uh, a certain niche of the beer drinking community uh, gravitate towards. And they can certainly be uh, exciting to make, and certainly there's some, some some wonderful flavors. But with Area Two, which you just mentioned, is is going up uh, in an adjacent facility. You guys are taking a pretty I don't want to say gamble, but you're you're once again sort of betting on the future a little bit of uh, where beer is going to be going. And 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 what I find really interesting is there are breweries that talk about a wood program or breweries that talk about a wild program, and typically it'll be a couple of barrels that are stacked up uh, in their brew house uh, just by nature of the side. They don't have a whole separate area, or maybe there's a separate barrel house. But very rarely is there um, uh, a separate facility. We There are some breweries that we can point to, but usually it's part of 
an existing brewery. So one, why build a whole new area? Um, uh, and, and two, um, what do you hope that it will eventually accomplish in teaching people about wood and teaching people about what wild beer can be? And I know it's an involved question, but I'm curious as to what, why. Yeah, well, we, we by building a 25,000 square foot facility at you know, uh, millions of dollars expense, we're obviously bullish on the future of of specialty beers, which, you know, certainly sours, as they're loosely called, are, are a big component, but not the only. Uh, a separate facility is, in, in our case, I would like to point out that we've been doing this all along. Since we, before we brewed our first drop here, we were already um, experimenting with wild yeast caught on the site, on the property here. Uh, with the help of a couple of local professors. So we were doing this, you know, we, it was always part of our plan to do some innovative, offbeat specialty beers. But, you know, we also are, are not going to take the kind of risk of infecting the main facility. You know, not only are we brewing products for ourselves, but we have 12 or, you know, soon to be 13 other customers. And yeah. that's... That's a responsibility we don't take lightly. Um, other people's products and brands and reputation is on the line if we screw up. Yeah. And so putting a separate facility in was, was the only way we would do this on a large scale. Now, we've, we've had small batch releases, and I'm talking like maybe a 1,000 bottles we'd release of, of uh, certain barrel-aged sour beers. So we want to do this on a larger scale. So, so the separate facility was a must in our opinion. In our, in our assessment, uh, as far as sours becoming the next IPA, I think that's that's kind of a you know, that's a headline grabbing statement. Right. But in, in reality, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, but people are still not aware of the possibilities in brewing. That how many different flavors you can get out of uh, it, and still call it beer, something you can still classify as beer, and. A facility such as Area 2 is in many ways going to be more like a winery than a brewery because it's going to be, you know, certain batches will be years in the making. Uh, there'll be products that people can buy a bottle of and lay down for years and still have it be good whenever they choose to open it. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, depending on your, your perspective, they might even be better after five years or ten years or two years or one year, whatever the case may be. So it's it, it'll be a place that emphasizes the fact that beer is can, can continue to surprise and what it can be and and you know it's not going to be all sour beers it's going to be beers aged in different barrels it's going to be beers made from wild yeast that are unique to our brewery and our site so uh, it'll be a, a large mix of things but again the continual point that will drive home is that there's hopefully truly endless possibilities for beer Beer can be all sorts of different things you never imagined. And language matters. And, and and I fell into the trap as well. Just You can't classify everything as sour. It's sort of an easy way of describing things. But how do you talk about the beers that you've made uh, that, that fall into, I guess, a wild category or fall into um, 
some of the things that you just described, things that are aged in wood, uh, things that uh, beers that are uh, with, with, with fruit added, with not um, sour doesn't actually help us understand what these products are. So how, how do you approach these beers? Well, you know, again, we're, we, we haven't opened yet, but we intend to incorporate education as, as part of the, the experience for someone to come over to, to Area 2. And yes, the terms sour and wild, for that matter, I, I think are terms of convenience. They, they um, maybe loosely describe the type of beer we're producing, but in some cases, you know, the, the, there are now um, Gozas, which we have a tanker truck series that, mm-hmm. that is becoming uh, more and more popular with each release that, that incorporate souring technique, but a kettle, kettle souring technique, so it's quicker. Um, it doesn't yield the complexity of something that sours in a barrel for years, which you know we, we really want to do with Area 2 and Two Roads Combined, cover what we feel is full gamut of beer flavors and possibilities. Um, so the, the barrel-aged beers and the wildness to it is, those are appropriate terms because as a brewer, just as we do with regular beers that we produce, you know, you, you really kind of give, you set up the conditions, but you really kind of surrender control to microorganisms such as yeast and other bacteria. And, you know, on the scale where you've got uh, a batch of beer divided up into a bunch of different barrels, really every barrel is different. It takes on a life of its own based on the flora that's in it, based on your treatment and based on conditions that you can't explain. So so that to me is the fun aspect of those types of beers that they just like vintages of wine, there's a there's a variability from, from year to year, from batch to batch, that is embraced rather than looked down upon. You know, here at Two Roads we've got a we we strive to make the batches the same, batch to batch, and that's the expectation for most beer produced in the world Mm -hmm. Um, but then this is this other kind of untethered um, of realm of beers that are that are truly different and unique and each barrel is unique and there's a, a skill in blending the barrels together to achieve a certain uniformity of character that you're you're striving for that you're targeting um, that that makes that fun and somewhat, I wouldn't say largely unpredictable, but there's an unpredictability to it that that makes it challenging and fun as a brewer and and as a consumer. Where, you know, what's the what nuance am I going to pick up today? It might be the exact same beer you had yesterday, or a couple of days before, but you you do perceive it differently depending on the time of day that what you've recently consumed so there's just you know all of that is some is the fun of a specialty beer experience and that sort of thing is what we hope to really present and have people experience at at area two where they're going to realize that that beer is has endless possibilities but it, it seems like it would take it does take more than just saying, oh, this is a you know hop forward IPA or citrus forward 
uh, IPA, uh, or this is a you know Hefeweizen with banana and clove, where people it, it's sort of immediately identifiable for people, where you can use uh, simple words as to as to what you're getting in uh, getting from those types of beer experiences. Uh, the type of beers that you're talking about uh, that will be coming out of uh, Area 2 and, and, and so many other of these beers that uh, are being made by uh, by other breweries across the country. There, there's Sour and wild are easy words, um, but they don't, they don't explain a lot. How can you as a brewer articulate some of these things? Uh, you know, have you started thinking about that? How... You know, how can somebody leave with a better understanding? Because we all sort of need a push towards what what it is that that we're having, especially for the first time or the fifth time or the hundredth time uh, as we're all evolving uh, with our with our own palates. How, how do you push people towards experiencing these beers as aside from just a generic catch-all term? Well, I think you get we we plan to give people some basic tools. And and um, basic understanding of what went into producing the beer, um, and you know you can give someone a, a novella of information on a particular beer, but it all comes down to tasting it and deciding if they like it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's so. So I expected that facility sampling is going to be a big part of the experience. Just just tasting different flavors, not necessarily um, wanting more of any given one, or let alone wanting a pint glass of it, but just experiencing the different uh, nuances and possibilities and hopefully finding something that they really like and, and want to drink you know, repeatedly. But it's going to be a sampling type of environment. We're going to have a lot of variations. Uh, education could be the exact same beer goes in this type of barrel, the exact same beer went in this type of barrel. Can you find the difference? Do you like the difference? Do you notice it? That that's the kind of thing that that we expect to do as as an educational tool. Um, but ultimately, the individual has to decide whether they like it or not. And and time will tell. But we're we're obviously bullish on it. And uh, and judging from response that we've gotten just to from the the renderings and the plans and 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 the announcement that we're doing it has been you know a great encouragement validation is a strong word but it's um mm-hmm. you know i think validation will come once you know proof is in the pudding as they say well the area two should be opening up hopefully by the end of 2018 maybe early into 2019 or thereabouts people can come by and uh uh, stop by two roads to see the progress, uh, have a pint, and then uh, at some point, hopefully in the next what year or so, we'll be able to walk across the parking lot over to uh, to the new facility. Well, we, we truly are um, optimistic. By the end of 2018, <laughs> we'll have we'll have uh, the tasting room open over there, and, and have uh, you know we already have been brewing the long-term products that that um, are we're going to open with we've got a you know some of these take 18 months or so so we've had you know we've been been producing quietly behind the scenes some of these brands and and certainly been doing a lot of product development on on brands that we plan to open with so uh, as long as the facility is ready we'll be ready with the beer 
Well, we will stay tuned for that, as it were. Uh, Phil Markowski of Two Roads, thanks so much for sitting down and uh, schooling me on language and uh, and a few other things. I have to uh, think about these things uh, a little bit more, as I think we, we all do. Uh, you can find Phil's beers uh, in a variety of states up and down the East Coast, as well as in Colorado, uh, if you live out there. And you can check them out online. I encourage you to drink the beers. If you have questions for me about this podcast, guests you'd like to hear, please email me at johnhall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com, or you can join the conversation on Twitter at john underscore hall. Phil, thanks again for having us here and for sharing your knowledge, and um, we will be back next week with an all-new episode. It's my pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.